when her husband of multiple years, multiple decades, died of a prolonged illness, it rocked her world, and understandably so. By all accounts, he was a great guy. He was a fantastic husband, a solid father. He was a great grandfather. He spoke into so many lives. He, he had, was a pillar in the business community. Everybody seemed to love this guy. So when he died, she picked up a phone and she called a pastor and asked him to officiate the funeral. Now, they didn't go to church anywhere. Uh, they didn't believe in Jesus or God, but she wanted closure. And the pastor rightfully just said, yes, I would love to officiate your husband's service. Well, after several different conversations, it became clear that she wanted something a little bit different than, than was the norm for the, the pastor. She wanted him to ensure the, her kids, her family, those who are attending the funeral service, that her husband was now in heaven and he was a guardian angel. And he would be looking over them and the kids and the grandkids until they could join him in that sweet by and by. And, and, and the pastor lovingly said, I, I can't do that. I, theologically, I got some issues with that. Now, during a time of grief, it's not really time to talk about deep theological issues. He said, here's what I want to do. I want to highlight all the great things your husband did. I didn't know him, but I, I just want to highlight all those great things he did because it looks like he was well-loved. But I'm going to point people to Jesus. She said, well, thanks a lot. I'll find someone else. That story came to mind as I was putting today's teaching today because we're going to be talking today about hell. <laughs> Yay! Welcome to church. Woo. It seems like most people have no problem accepting the reality of uh, some form of paradise after we die, but most want to reject the reality of hell. Back in 2015, there was a Pew study that was done. They interviewed thousands upon thousands of American Christians. And the question was, is hell a real place? Do you believe that hell is a real place? And it was interesting that 37% of the people who, uh, who answered the question said, no, it's not. It's just a figurative place. There's no such thing as hell. And I think, it, I, I think they got those results and we see those results for a couple of reasons. One of them is wishful thinking. It is, it's, it's one of those things to where we want to think that if someone is good, whatever that means, that they're in heaven. And now that good is a sliding scale. What you may see as good and what I see as good could be two different things. Another thing is that damnation is just not fun to talk about. It's not fun to think about. Yet understand this. Jesus spoke more about the torment and punishment of hell than he spoke about the comfort and hope of heaven. Jesus believed that hell was a real place. In fact, if you look at Jesus and all the words that he, he, he spoke about when it came to the afterlife, and specifically a place of torment and pain, he spoke more than all the other biblical characters combined on that topic. And so it begs a question, have you ever considered that you really can't understand God's love with understanding, without understanding the doctrine of hell? It's true. What we're going to see today is that the doctrine of love and the doctrine of hell are closely intertwined. Such as what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And it's to be avoided at all costs. It's real, eternal, and to be avoided at all costs. In the book of Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel says that God does not enjoy punishing the wicked. 
but it is a reality. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we step into yet another week of our series called The Puzzle of Parables. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart a bunch of different parables, stories that Jesus told. Now, Jesus was a master storyteller, and, and he told a lot of those stories through parables. What a parable is, it's a very simple story with a solid, concrete spiritual meaning. We're going to see that today in Luke chapter 16, where we look at the rich man and Lazarus. So turn in your, your Bibles to Luke 16. Let me set the scene for what's going on. Go back with me to A.D. 33. 33 A.D. That's when Jesus dies on the cross. He dies on the cross for our sins. He's buried and he's resurrected. The most important date in the history of humanity. Now our story picks up a handful of months before that. Jesus is throwing down pretty hard with this group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Now he's, he's speaking to the Pharisees about wealth. And the issue is that, the, uh, that wealth is what the Pharisees loved. They loved wealth oftentimes more than they loved God. And it seems like he, he, we get into this story today in Luke 16, and he's shifting gears. But really, he's not. What he's going to do is he's going to show, show us that what has your heart is really what sends you to hell. What we're going to see is that Jesus takes this doctrine of hell that's, that's throughout Scripture, and he makes it very understandable for us in, in a very, very short parable. He's going to contrast life, death, and eternity by contrasting these two characters. Well, before I get started, I always want to do the shout-out to theologians I leaned into for today's teaching. Uh, they were R.C. Sproul, uh, Timothy Keller, Peter Gray, and Jim Dennison. So with that, I hope you're wearing sunglasses. If you got suntan lotion, SPF of about a million, because here comes the heat. You guys ready? Luke 16, verses 19 through 21. Here we go. Jesus is telling the story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Okay, now this guy named Lazarus is not the same Lazarus Jesus shortly after this is going to raise from the dead. That's a different story. Lazarus is covered with sores and he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So right out of the bat, Jesus names who the two characters are. One doesn't have a name. He's just known as the rich man. The other has a name and his name is Lazarus. This is the only parable in which Jesus gives a proper name, an actual name, to someone in the parable. So let's talk about these two characters. Let's contrast them. First of all, let's talk about the rich man. He's obviously rich. Our, our text here says that he wears purple and fine linen. Th that means that he's royalty. And as Jesus is talking about this guy, he's never had an empty belly. He's, he's, got, he's got so many blessings in his life. Jesus' audience, it's the Pharisees, it's the Jewish people, including the disciples. And they're all going, yeah, that makes sense. God's, God's blessed this man. And then he contrasts him with the guy named Lazarus. Let's talk about Lazarus. Names mean a lot in the Old Testament and New Testament. The name Lazarus in Greek actually means God is my help. In Hebrew, that everyone spoke that Jesus is speaking to, his name is God is my salvation. It's important in our story that Jesus identifies Lazarus with that name. You're going to see that play out here in a few minutes. So Lazarus is in a world of hurt. He's got a lot of issues in his life. He's poor. He's a beggar. 
he has uh, uh, sores all over his body. That means he's unclean. So he can't worship in the synagogue. Things are ugly for this guy. It's so bad that the unclean animals, the, the Israelites did not like dogs. And, and so the unclean animals were dogs and they would come and lick the man causing even more problems and more pain. So we see a contrast of these two men. Again, the audience though, the audience, when they see Lazarus, they're going to say, this guy's cursed by God. He must have some form of sin in his life. He must have some form uh, of sin from his ancestors. That's why he's in this spot. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus is going to flip the script, which he always seems to do. The time came when the beggar, that's Lazarus, died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, 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 circle that, put stars around it, in hell, where he, the rich man, was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So both of these guys die. Now here's what this story is not about. This story is not about rich people go to hell and, and poor people go to heaven. Abraham is in paradise. Abraham's one of the richest people in the Bible. And this guy named Lazarus, God is my salvation. He's had a horrible life and all of a sudden he is at Lazarus' side and the rich man is in hell. This is a story of idolatry. That what we worship has eternal consequences. And we really have to stay focused on that. So the rich man is in hell the poor man is now in paradise. He, rich man worships his wealth. Lazarus worships God. So let's start pulling this apart. I want to hang out on this, these two verses for, or three verses for a couple of minutes. If you look at this story, some of you may say, well, Kip, in the Bible, hell's not even in the Bible. You know, you guys have created this word hell. Okay, let, let me push back on that. More than 160 times in the Bible, a whole bunch of times by Jesus, we hear words like this. The abyss, everlasting punishment, Gehenna, Hades, Sheol. We're going to talk about that in a second. The pit, happy Halloween, the realm of the dead. The concept is clear. And Jesus spoke a whole lot about it. So let's geek out and Greek out because what I want to do is look at this word hell. The word hell has a bunch of different translations throughout the New Testament. Two of them that are used are Hades and Gehenna. Jesus uses the word Hades here. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about Gehenna because it, it, you'll, you'll see Jesus in Mark chapter 9. He uses this word Gehenna. It's another long passage that Jesus talks about the difficulty and punishment of hell. Read it on your own. Gehenna is a valley south of Jerusalem. And in Jesus' time, it was a huge burn pit. It was a garbage dump where, where fires burned 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, when someone hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus was worshiping, not God, but worshiping the little g-god Moloch, what they would do is they would sometimes sacrifice their children, and where they would do it is this place called Gehenna. So Gehenna is a lot of times used for the word hell, not here. Jesus uses the word Hades. Uh, Hades, let's talk about this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do the Kip Jam 3.0. Um, Bill Gates, eat your heart out. You can call my agent if you want my graphics. So let's talk, about, let's talk about Hades. We don't know where Hades is, but it's a sphere. It's somewhere. It's somewhere where people go when they die according to this parable. So according to this parable, what Jesus does, he's given us a, the doctrine of hell, and this is so cool. So let's look at Hades. Jesus says there, there are a couple places here. There's a bad place, and there's 
a good place. The bad place is where the rich man goes. The good place is where Lazarus and Abraham go. So let's talk about this. From the time of Adam and Eve, when, when people would die, remember, Jesus assigns Lazarus a name. God is my what? Salvation, yeah. So when people had God as their salvation, Yahweh as their, their salvation, up until the time of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, where they would go, if, if God is your salvation, you're in that happy place. But for those who worship something other than God, God was not your salvation. You went to this bad place, a place of torment, a place of pain. What we're going to see in our story today is there's a chasm in between, and the chasm is fixed. Once you're dead, you can't go from here to here. Now, remember, the Old, the, the Old Testament saints who believe that God was their salvation, they end up landing right here in this paradise place. So you got David, Ruth, Esther, all those, Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the heroes of faith. They go there. Everyone else, if God is not your salvation, you're in this other place, this place of torment and pain. No such thing as soul sleep or anything like that. You go to a place of pain. Enter Jesus. Jesus walks the earth for 33 years, uh, three-year earthly ministry, and Jesus goes to the cross. Now, when he's on the cross, he's got two criminals next to him, one on the left, one on the right. Now, one of those criminals is hurling insults at Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, take yourself down from this cross, and, and while you're at it, take us down. The other criminal says, wait a second, we deserve our punishment. Jesus is innocent, so he's repenting of his sin. And he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you please remember me when you enter your father's kingdom? And Jesus says these very, very important words. My son, today you will join me, for those of you who know the story, where? In paradise. Paradise. So Jesus dies on the cross. Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10, read it on your own, says that when he dies on the cross, he descends down into where? Hades. He descends into Hades and he proclaims the gospel to the captives. That's, I would say that's everybody, but specifically to those on the good side. And then what Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 says, that when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, he takes the captives with him. That would be the, good, the, the ones on the good side, the ones who said, God is my salvation. The others are left in this place of pain and torment. So what we have now, Hades, is no longer a good place and a bad place. Now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, Hades is a loathsome holding tank. So what happens is that someone who does not know Jesus, when he or she dies, they go to this place called Hades. The, the good news for those who know Jesus, when you die, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul is saying, I long to be with Jesus. I long to be with Jesus. He's had a difficult life, but he says these words, that, that it's better to be, at, or when you're absent in the body, you are present with Christ. What does he mean by that? He means that when you breathe your last breath here on earth, your next breath you breathe, you're standing in front of Jesus. No soul sleep or anything like that. You are standing right in front of Jesus. But what's difficult about this that we need to weep about 
is that those who do not know Jesus are in this place called Hades. Now here's the thing. Jesus is going to return, second coming of Christ. When he does, there will be a certain period uh, that he will be ruling, and then he'll set up what's called a great white throne judgment. Let me just draw the stool there. Is my, I should be an artist, shouldn't I? This is so good. It's found in Revelation 20. And what happens is, Jesus is going to pull all of these folks out of Hades, all the souls out of Hades, and he's going to judge them. And he's going to declare them guilty because they have not received Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And then they're going to be thrown in what's called the lake of fire, also sometimes translated as Gehenna. Uh, they'll be thrown in there with Satan. We're going to talk more about him next week. Yay. And, and they'll be thrown in there with Satan, and it'll be eternal punishment for them. For those of us as Christ followers at that great white throne judgment, we are going to receive our rewards for following Jesus. Jesus takes this doctrine of hell, all of that, and he summarizes it in a handful of paragraphs, a handful of verses. It begs some questions. What about babies? You know, what about babies and children who die? who never get to hear about Jesus, and they, can't, they, they mentally can't make a decision for Jesus. What about the mentally incapable? What about those who either live in the middle of the Amazon jungle, or you name the, the obscure place, I don't know, Camp Ripley, Minnesota? People who, a really a obscure place, and they, they can't hear about Jesus. What happens with them? And these are great questions, and honestly, I don't know. I'm not God, but here's what we do know. God gives us a handful of hints in Scripture, so we always go back to Scripture. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, go there on your own. David has sinned, he's, he's king of Israel, he's sinned with a gal named Bathsheba. Now he sins with her, she gets pregnant. By the way, she's the wife of one of his closest friends who's also a warrior, a fellow warrior. And so he sleeps with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, and he says, I'm going to cover this up. So he kills off Uriah as well as a handful of other Israelites, and he thinks it's all done. It's covered up. She, she grieves for a while, and after she grieves, he brings her into his house to be his wife. Now she's pregnant. God calls him on the carpet because there's no such thing as secret sin. And he says, listen, David, I've seen what you've done. David repents. He says, God, forgive me, please. He writes Psalm 51, such a great psalm about repentance. And God says, okay, I, I understand your repentant heart, but here's the bottom line. When your child, your, your, your wife Bathsheba is going to have your son, and when he's born, he's going to die. So sure enough, the child is born and the child gets sick. And David is in, in mourning and, and he's fasting and he's praying. He's covering himself with ashes and he's you know, wearing sackcloth. All the things that are showing that he's in a posture of please help my son. And God answers no to that. And so the child dies. As soon as, as the child dies, you would expect David to go and keep on mourning. No, he changes his clothes, he takes a bath, changes his clothes, and goes about business as usual. And people say, David, what up? You know, you, when the child was sick, you were fasting, praying, and mourning, and now then, that he's dead, you're just going to go on your merry way? And it's interesting because he says, you know, the child can't come back to me, but I know 
that when I die, I can go to him. Because think about this. This is before Jesus comes on the scene. So you got the good side and you got the bad side. David's going to be in paradise. And that child is there too. And that should give us hope for anyone who has lost a child. For those aborted babies out there. Those miscarried babies that, that you will see that child again. There seems to be some form of age of discernment. An ability to discern. So that covers, I think, people who are, 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 don't have the mental capacity to make those decisions. But what about those who've never heard of Jesus? What about those who just don't know God? Well, again, Scripture gives us a glimpse. First of all, we have to understand that all of us have sin in our lives. We're born with sin. I've got an amazing grandson. You, I've, talk, I've got two amazing grandsons and a beautiful granddaughter. My grandson and I, Case, I've talked about him a lot. He and I are tight. We do so much fun things together. He is being raised in a, a great environment. If he were raised in a perfect environment, we would still see the outcome when he and grandpa have cookies and, and we both like sweets and we're chowing down on them. It's like, okay, bud, time to be done. And he's like, no, and he throws a fit. It's because he and I have sin nature in our lives because when my wife takes my, my cookies away, I throw a fit. <laughs> we are born, none of us are innocent is what I'm saying. So in, in Romans chapter one, verse 20, God says uh, through the Apostle Paul that, that everyone has seen God because we see him in creation. We see him in nature. We see him in that sunrise, the sunset, a beautiful day. We see him in the ocean. We see him in the mountains. We see him in his creation. I'll take it a step further. In John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, we hear words like this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. That's Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. We see in Colossians that all things have been made by him, for him, and through him. That nothing has been made without him. That everything that has been made has been made by Jesus. So when you're seeing creation, you're actually seeing Jesus. So God says no one is without excuse. None of us are without excuse. So people reject the knowledge of God that's present in nature and in their own hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has put eternity on our hearts. Back to this rich man. This rich man is in Hades. He's in torment. And the reason why is because his wealth was his God. We're going to see that. And because his wealth was his God, he was incompatible with God. It's an incompatibility issue. What do I mean by that? It's an incompatibility issue. God is holy and perfect. He is loving and wants everyone to be saved. He wants, he, he wants the best for his creation. He's holy and loving, but the problem is because of this sin in our lives, we cannot approach a holy God. And we can say, no, I can do all these good works stack them up to the sky, it's still not enough. We are incompatible to God. So out of his love for us, he sends us Jesus. John 3, 16, most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved all of us that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. But for those who don't believe in him, it's eternal life, yes, but a life of punishment and torment. When we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it's a free gift, the beautiful thing about it is God looks at you and me, and he doesn't see all the stupid stuff in our lives. Who he sees 
And what he sees is Jesus, and he celebrates over that. He celebrates over you with Jesus in your life. But it's an incompatibility issue, and we can't be compatible without Jesus. God is loving, but he also has to be just. There has to be punishment for the evil in this world. There has to be punishment for that. So because of that, God is a good judge, and he gives us the ability to avoid that. It's fair. In, in fact, it's more than fair. He punishes his own son so that we don't have to deal with that, but those who don't receive his son, it's a different story for them. Folks, if there is no justice, God is not loving. And the beautiful thing about God is that he cares more about your future than he cares about your past. He wants to get involved right now in the middle of your presence. And with Jesus, we become compatible with him. I once heard a pastor say, this world is the closest to hell a Christian will be. It's the closest to heaven a non-Christian will be. So let's go back to verses 22 and 23. Because I want to review that again and let's, then we'll blow through the rest of this. The, the time came when the beggar, Lazarus, died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. Okay, so he's describing now, before, this is before Jesus ascends, we got the bad side, we got the good side. Everybody tracking so far? Yeah, two of you, thank you. Hang in there. Verses 24 and 25. So he, the rich man, called to him, Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you, you are in agony. So here's what's interesting about this. Even while he's in this place of punishment, he's treating Lazarus as a servant. And he says, just have him, just have him dip his finger in the water and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in a better place. He's in agony. And that's very important for those of you who believe that, hey, I'd rather go party in, in hell with, uh, with my friends than hang out with you crazy Christians in heaven. It's a place of agony and pain. Hell is real, eternal, and to be avoided at all costs. So the rich man, get this, the rich man sends himself to hell by what he worships. By what he worships, and it's his wealth. And what we find is, is that he's, he's a very selfish man. He's all about taking care of his own needs. And isn't that what sin really is? It's selfishness. It, it's, it's, it's taking care of your own needs in front of everybody else's. But let's go back to this rich man. Let's go back to this rich man. We'll talk about that in a second. He's got an idol. And his idol is wealth. It's what... Lazarus, God was his salvation, but his idol is his wealth. Timothy Keller, who we've, uh, we've, we've referred to many times, he's, he's written and preached a lot on idolatry, so many good things. And he said this about this story. He says that your idol is your name. Your idol is your name. Think about this. Your idol is your name. If you would describe yourself, would you be Lazarus, God is my salvation? Or would it be something else? 
I mean, the rich man, he doesn't get a name, but he's just descri he describes what's most important to him as rich man. If you take away my name, what's the most important thing to me? Am I a son of the living God? That needs to be the most important thing to me. Or is it pastor or father or grandfather or a social activist, whoever you guys are, if you're social activists, if you're involved in politics, a, a successful business person, whatever it is, those are good things, but when they become the main thing, the only thing, that's when it's an issue. Your idol is your name. It describes you. What's most important in your life? Timothy Keller also said these words, the godly enjoy the pleasures of life but aren't driven by them. The ungodly are driven by the pleasures of life. God is not their treasure. What drives you? What saves you? How can a good God send people to hell? We send ourselves to hell by what we worship. And that's the beauty of this story. We can worship Jesus or we can worship something else. And there are eternal consequences or rewards for both. Verse 26, Abraham continues, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So it's a cosmic shift. There's a chasm in between. You can't get from one side to the other. Once you die, it's a done deal. There's no such thing as soul sleep where you just go to sleep. There's no such thing as purgatory where for some reason you have to go down into purgatory which doesn't even exist in the Bible and you get your sins burned off and you can have family members lighting candles for you to get you out of that place, out of purgatory sooner rather than later. That's, that's just not in God's word. There's no such thing as baptism of the dead. Once you die, it's done. No second chances. Guys, this teaching is frightening. Verses 27 and 28. The rich man continues. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So he's still looking at Lazarus as as, as a servant. And what's interesting about this, the, the parable starts out, you've got the rich man who's looking good, and you got Lazarus who's not looking so good. Uh, the rich man, you got a rich man and you got beggar, now, uh, the beggar. And now Jesus flips the script to where the beggar is now the rich man, and the rich man is now the beggar. Here the rich man refuses to own his own sin. He says, it wasn't my fault. I didn't have enough information don't miss this. This is so important. Look at this. It wasn't the severity and quantity of his sin that sent him to hell. He wasn't Adolf Hitler. He wasn't Saddam Hussein. He wasn't a New England's Patriots fan. <laughs> wealth, wealth was his God. He was about himself. And as I said, sin is about selfishness. It's about putting yourself and your needs before God's and others. He worshipped he, he money which is temporal, instead of God. God is my salvation who's eternal. He cared for the needs of himself instead of the need of others. Folks, the chasm is not fixed because God is some evil dictator with a grudge. Out of his fairness, he gives us Jesus. The chasm is fixed because we worship things other than Jesus. So he makes a request. Send Lazarus to tell my brothers because this place is sheer hell. Look at Abraham's response, verses 29 to 31. 
Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now let's put ourselves in Jesus' sandals real quick. He's telling this story. He's looking at the very people who are going to crucify him along with the Romans. Jesus says these words. Back, he's, he's talking about Abraham. He, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, look at this, look at this, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Shortly after this, shortly after this, Jesus is going to heal a man named Lazarus. He gets sick. It's, uh, Lazarus is a, a, a brother of Mary and Martha. He gets sick. He dies. Jesus shows up at the scene. He raises him from the dead. And guess what? When he raises him from the dead, people want to kill not only Lazarus, now they want to kill Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross. He's crushed for our sin. He, he dies. He's buried. He's resurrected. He's walking the dirt for 40 days, and people still didn't believe that he is God in the flesh. They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's evidence that demands a verdict. Every week here at Cornwall Church, we stand on the Bible. We stand on preaching God's word. We stand on Jesus being the hero. He has to be the hero or our preaching simply empty. Every week we do that and we, that, and we want to present the evidence to you. We want you to have that relationship with Jesus, not only because it, you, it, there are eternal consequences without Jesus, but also on this side of eternity, that ability to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to have a purpose, to understand suffering in a way that others who don't know Jesus can't get. So in your sermon notes today, I, I put a couple a couple resources, I've used them before, besides God's word, besides godly men and women in your life, besides the church. Your two resources I gave you, one is Timothy Keller's The Reason for God. It's a deep read. It's a difficult read, but it's so good. And the other is, is a little bit lighter, but it's really, really good. It's written by a pastor and theologian named Greg Boyd. It's called Letters from a Skeptic. And what Greg does, does is his dad does not believe in God. And he has all those good, tough questions. How can a good God allow suffering? What about babies? Some of the things we talked about today. And Greg answers them in a very loving and a very uh, easily understandable way. You've got the evidence, but you've got to make a decision. Jesus said with parables, many will hear and few will understand. So back to Lazarus. Lazarus, the God who saves. Jesus chose this name in this story for a reason. It's a, it's a simple story with a concrete spiritual meaning. And he talks about this place called Hades, or eventually hell. And it's a place of conscious torment after death. But what can happen is, like me, what's happened to me so often in my life, is we can think that the lost really aren't lost. You know, we, uh, we've spoken a lot how you earn the right to be heard with someone. Well, at some point, you, you know, you're, you're showing them Jesus through your actions and your love and care for them. At some point, you've got to talk to them about it. And what has happened is Satan has convinced us that the lost really aren't lost. And some of you recoiled when I said that name, Satan, because you're like, okay, here we go again, these weird Christians. Oh, really? Three out of four people in the United States believe in the afterlife. Halloween, you're going to see a lot of people not only worshiping Satan, but dressed up as Satan. So are we really the weirdos? My pushback to those of you who don't believe that the lost aren't really lost, Jesus 
preached on the doctrine of hell more than he preached on the comforts of heaven. We believe it because he believed in it. It's real, it's eternal, and it's to be avoided at all costs. So what I want to do in the last few minutes of the day, I want, to kind of, I want to walk us through salvation and what that looks like. So let me give you six biblical facts. We're going to blow through these really quickly. For some of the references in there, you're going to have to go back online or go to the app and you'll see those references there. First of all, hell is real. Hell is real. We've, we've, we've uh, kicked that dead horse, no pun intended, pretty hard. Hell is real. Secondly, God loves you. John 3, 16. We've talked about that. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But the issue is, is our sin. Our selfishness has separated us from God. And there's, fourthly, there's nothing we can do about it. Absolutely nothing. All of our good works, uh, they, they don't matter in the eyes of God because you, you can't approach a holy God because it'll never be enough. So out of his love for us, out of his grace, it's by his grace that we're saved through faith. So we can't boast and say, God, you owe me. Look at all this good stuff I did. Number five, Jesus died to pay the debt owed by your sins. And number six, simply receive that gift. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, he died for your sins and God raised him from the the dead, you will be saved. We've got the evidence, but we need to make a verdict. Augustine, 1,600 years ago, said this. He said, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. So I want to do a couple things right now. For those of you who know Jesus right now, for those of you attending online at our community sites in Skagit, I need you, for those of you who know Jesus, I need you to be praying right now. Because we're going to ask those who do not know Jesus, we're going to ask them to pray And we're going to say a specific prayer. Here's the thing. A prayer, the salvation prayer that we're going to pray is not the get out of hell free card and okay, I can go do whatever I want. It starts a dialogue with God, a relationship with God who longs to have that relationship with you. It allows you to start glorifying God in your life in ways unimaginable as he gives you his Holy Spirit. It's a lifelong relationship. So I'd like everybody just to bow your heads. For those of you who know Jesus, please, please be praying for someone to make a decision today. If you don't know Jesus and you're convicted, that's, that's, that's God knocking on your door. Pray this prayer silently with me. Dear God, dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins, for my failures. I admit to you, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sins. I turn from them right now. I invite Jesus into my life as my Savior and Lord. Jesus, I turn my life over to you. I will live for you as long as I live. Thank you for giving me eternal life and making me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you prayed that, 
you're starting this relationship with God in an amazing way. He's going to rock your world, and we want to be part of that. So two things. For those of you attending here in Bellingham and in Skagit, at the end of this service, we would love to have you go out to our guest services uh, and uh, to the desk out there and grab a new believer's packet. For those of you who did receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, uh, we would ask that you would also text the word STEP, S-T-E-P, to 94,000. Yeah, we're leveraging technology here. Step to 94,000. And here's what's going to happen. When you do that, you're going to get a link. And it's going to have four things that you can click on. Uh, do you want, uh, how can we, uh, it, it'll show us how we can help you as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you want to join a small group? Uh, do you want to talk with a pastor? Do you want a Bible? Things of that nature. Text step to 94,000. And before I sign off today, I want to give all of us, every single one of us, a challenge. And no matter where you sit, where Jesus is, the challenge is this. Ask yourself this question. What is my salvation? What is my salvation? What's the king of my heart or the queen of my heart? Identify it. And if it's anything besides God, confess that to him and start walking with him to make him the king of your heart. Folks, we're all gonna die Newsflash, death is not the end, but a beginning. It's not a wall, it's a door, a door to something amazing for those who believe in Jesus, something different for those who don't. Please, please make that choice because hell is real. Hell is eternal and it's to be avoided at all costs.